Hello. Good evening. Afternoon, six o'clock, I'm not sure where that falls. All right. Uh, welcome. Another year of uh, SLM. This is not the Thursday night dress code, um, but if I don't get time to go home uh, after leaving the office, I'll be wearing this instead of my sweatpants. Not much at all. Um, Historically, School Life and Ministry has been a Thursday night class where we get together um, for an hour, and there'll be a teaching, and then there's a small group structure, which everyone was required to participate in, but we realize that time constraints and life caused people to have a lot of other obligations that they may really want to be a part of something or just have some consistency through the week, and they couldn't afford the other time commitment required for the small group, so we said, you know what? If you want to come Thursdays, great. Uh, if you want to do the small groups, it's up to you. It's available. It'll continue. They're amazing. Um, but that's your call whether or not you want to do that. Um, you're welcome to be a part of it, if not, as well. Um, however, because of that, if you want to do a small group, you have to let me know so that if you're not in one, we can get you into one um, that fits you and your schedule and where you're at in life uh, with a leader that's also um, able to speak into your life at your stage of life. So um, that's one change. Uh, as far as how the small group structure functions, it's going to be exactly the same. So those of you who have done it before, there's no real changes for you guys that way. Last year we had a Wednesday night class uh, for people that were new, but most of them were coming Thursdays anyway. And we decided just to put more of our energy into Thursdays, more focus. So what we're going to do on Thursdays is we'll have worship music playing for probably about a half an hour beforehand. Um, and it will be louder, um, kind of letting everyone know that, hey, there are people here that are intentionally worshiping, almost like a midweek service. At times, uh, we may have a worship team, at times not. Um, pre- Trevor and I haven't really talked about this, but Brent volunteered. Uh, Trevor's a worship leader, so probably doing good to let him know. But um, Brent had volunteered when he was off to come in and just throw a team together at random and, and play the service. Um, so we may do that here and there. But weekly there will be music playing for about a half an hour if you want to come in, just worship, pray, whatever. Um, we'll go for an hour. And then last year and the year before, the Thursday night afterwards, the leaders would leave and meet together. And we found that was kind of um, taking away from some ministry time uh, that was happening after the teaching in years prior. And so we decided to move the leaders' groups to a different time. They volunteered to free up their schedules on other days so that we can have the time in the evening after the service. If anyone wants to get prayed for, you just want to sit and talk to someone about the material or where you're at in life, that's going to be available now again as it was uh, at the beginning. So um, this semester, just a quick overview for you guys. I've kind of got it broken down into three different segments. The first one, I want to talk about um, refocusing on the eternal, on uh, what it is to live before God and uh, from an eternal perspective. Um, I just got done with an hour and a half long conversation with someone where we're talking about all the poor decisions that we've made in life were because we were largely lacking a long-term vision or perspective. It was what feels good in this moment, what makes sense right now, what do I think I want to do here, what am I feeling, and it wasn't weighing the effects of my decision in a 30-year scale or a 100-year scale or a, you know eternal scale. Um, so we're going to spend a few weeks uh, kind of bringing some perspective to life about what it means to live before God with an eternal perspective. Um, In the middle segment, so to speak, of the semester, we're going to get into um, uh, some pragmatism. Um, The practical always trumps big vision, always. And we're going to talk about why that is and how it's great to have vision And it's great to um, be heading in a direction, but if you're not living practically, uh, it's going to be really, really hard to see any of those things fulfilled one day at a time. So we're going to spend about a month um, looking at some different ways that that fits and makes sense in our lives. And then the last 
portion, we're going to talk about um, being a Christian in this age and what that lives like, looks like, and some of the costs that go along with that. Um, because uh, I think it's safe to say that it's not exactly culturally popular at this stage anymore. Um, and so there are some things that go along with how do I, how do I be a Christian and you know, be faithful to the Lord and yet not um, violate my conscience? And how do I not, um, you know, how do I fit in with people? How do I fit in in the culture? What is this supposed to live like? What's it supposed to look like? Um, and so we'll look at some different ways, and I'm going to have someone join me um, also in that period and just share some of their own stories of, as to how they've lived effectively um, this way for, for a few years. And in spite of their youth, uh, a lot of good insights that way. So that's kind of a broad overview for the semester. Um, not going to get into the nitty-gritty details because there's a really good chance that something will change um, as we get into it. At some point, I may take a break and tell you kind of the history of this church. I feel like it's very important. I feel like it's very relevant because our history is kind of like what we'd call our testimony, our story. What has God been doing in our midst here as a church that got us to where we are today? And sometimes looking backwards helps us see where we might be going when we look forward. Um, so somewhere in there, there have been enough years um, since the pain of things that may have happened um, as this church changed, where I feel a little bit more liberty to share some of those stories and um, some of the things that went on. So I'm going to uh, pray, and then we'll get started tonight. Father, thank you for uh, summer and rest. Um, Thank you for refreshing us and that you're You are always with us to bring us into a place of restoration and uh, refreshment in preparing us to run again. So Lord, as it pertains to SLM and um, other things that are tied to the campus, as we ramp up to start to run again, I ask you, Lord, that you would root us and ground us in you and in your word. Give us an eternal perspective as we start to make decisions for the next year, maybe the next four years, um, and in our future. Uh, Cause us to seek you in all of our decisions and hear from you before we do anything. We love you. Amen. Amen. So, I've been thinking, um, as I talked a little bit earlier about the eternal a lot, and next week we're going to talk about having an eternal perspective, and in two weeks it's going to be more along the lines of, if life is but a vapor, how then shall we now live? And I felt like it was really important to establish one piece before I got into thinking eternally. And the one piece that I really felt important, particularly amidst the um, culture that we find ourselves in, and in no way is this attempting to rail on culture, but I want to talk about what it looks like as we are children of God. We we come into what uh, would have long been called salvation, or new life in Jesus. We meet him, we get forgiven, we start living new. What does this look like for us as children of God? And so I called this serving in the courts of heaven because I feel like it's really important that we enter this uh, life with an understanding that We are here to serve God. He is the Lord Jesus, um, and we serve him. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, we see references to his love. There's a huge emphasis in the church on being sons of God, being children of God, and that's entirely appropriate, as long as the context of being a servant remains. Um, Essentially, in the New Testament, you see the apostles making a declaration and... um, The love of Christ compels me. Uh, And essentially what he's saying is, because of how much Jesus has benefited me, I will live entirely for his benefit. The love of Christ compels me to live this way, to live for him. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what he's saying is, when you got forgiven, there was an exchange for you. You were literally purchased. That's what, that's what the scripture says. Is we were literally purchased from one master and became servants of a new master. That was what transpired in our salvation, is the old word. And, and basically, salvation means you were saved, you were rescued, you were born anew. So when you got forgiven of all the things that you'd done wrong, and you asked for uh, forgiveness, and that happened, what actually happened was you were purchased. You were a servant of sin, and you were literally purchased by Jesus and made a servant of God. That's the literal transaction that happened in the legal courts of heaven. So if you look at things from a legal standpoint, that's actually what happened. Romans 6, 20 to 22, it, it puts it in legal terms. Uh, when you were slaves of sin, servants of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning you didn't have to obey this master. You just did what your master wanted you to do, and that was sin. So I lived there for a few years, so I, I know exactly what he's talking about. I felt no obligation to do things that were right. I wholeheartedly indulged what my master asked me to do, which was sin, and I got really good at it. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? That also is true. For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from the mastery of sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get in obedience to him leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Paul's putting it in legal terms. He was a master of the law, so he thought with a very legal mind, and he's saying, once this was your master, but you've been bought from that master, you need no longer serve him, now you can wholeheartedly serve the Lord Jesus. I was kind of asking myself um, this week, you know, it's, it's been a number of years uh, since I, I did wholeheartedly indulge um, in that regard, and I was kind of asking myself, have I forgotten the horrors that were attached to a life under sin's mastery? Um, have I forgotten the shame, the guilt, the sorrow, the pain? Um, it's good to remember those things to remind us what a cruel master he is and that we best not step back into those things because he'll quickly master us once again. Um, thankfully, upon our new birth, and our forgiveness, we were purchased by a new master. Um, there's a really cool picture of this in the Old Testament. When Joseph, he's taken captive by his own brothers, and he's sold to his Ishmaelite cousins. Um, the Ishmaelites were a very, very, very rough group of people, very violent. They were known as bloodthirsty warriors. And Joseph was sold to them as a slave, and he was in their possession for a period of time. We don't know how long, but I would assume that it was not a pleasant time. And then they sell him to a man named Potiphar, who was a leader in Pharaoh's kingdom. He was a wealthy man, and he basically gave Joseph everything. He gave him charge over his whole kingdom, over his whole household. The only thing that Potiphar had to worry about was what he was going to eat. And Joseph handled everything for him. So Joseph goes from being a slave to the Ishmaelites, who I don't imagine treated him real well, to now he's a servant of Potiphar, who has basically made him a son, given him full authority over everything in his house, all the luxuries that go along with it. And that's kind of the picture that we get as we are bought out of slavery to sin and we're now servants in the house of God. As servants in the house of God, rightfully there's an emphasis placed on our sonship, it's called, or we are children of God. And it depends on which translation of the Bible you read. You might read, you are sons of God. You might read, you are children of God. The principle is, God is your dad. He is your father. You have access to him in ways that are incredible, that we have no right to, and yet 
we do, and he treats us as his children. We have been seated in heavenly places with Christ. Jesus is called the firstborn of many brothers. So he even says, I'm one of your siblings. God the Father is my father. I'm your big brother. Um, Scripture says that we have been entrusted with a kingdom, that the Father um, takes pleasure in entrusting us with his kingdom. There's a lot that goes along with that. I'm not going to get into that right now. We're called children of God, new creations, imbued with authority from on high. That means that everything that God has, he gives to us as his kids. Incredible. However, we are called and commissioned as servants. Now, sonship and servant, they don't negate or belittle one another. The privilege of a son is to be enjoyed, but it's to be leveraged with the attitude and action of a servant. That's kind of a big, that's important. So the privilege and authority of a son is to be enjoyed, but it's to be leveraged with the attitude and action of a servant. What does that mean? It means that there are two ways you can live as a son if you have a very wealthy father. Um, Maybe some of you understand this, maybe some of you don't. But if you have a father or someone who is over you who is wealthy and one of privilege, you can go one of two ways with this type of life. You can just take it all and you do what you want to do with all of your dad's money and you let him buy you nice things and you basically ride this sucker for all he's worth. And you milk it for everything you can get out of it. And then there's another route where you have privilege, you have authority, you have wealth, and yet you understand that you're one of the members of a family and you're leveraging it for the best interest of your dad and your family. So you use your wealth, you use your authority, and you use your position for the betterment of other people, including your father's house. That's what it's supposed to look like. So what does the calling of a servant look like? Um, Well, when Jesus commissioned the disciples, do you remember this in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? Um, I found a translation, and uh, Jesus appears to them. You know, he's resurrected from the dead. He's about to commission the disciples, and he looks at them and he says, If it works in your schedule, vacation, therefore, in all nations. And if you have a few extra bucks, give some cash to a poor dude and hope he becomes a disciple. Um, That's the New Living Message alternate version. I'm just kidding. Um, There's a lot of sarcasm dripping, um, if you didn't pick up on that. But it's okay. Um, Jesus did not request that the disciples go to all nations. He did not say, guys, I got an idea. You should think about this. He commands them, go ye therefore. So when we become children of God, his lordship and authority over us becomes non-negotiable from his perspective. It may be from our perspective, but we're only going to create trouble for ourselves. Jesus didn't give the disciples an option because his lordship over us is not an option. It's non-negotiable. We were once slaves of a horrid master, and Jesus literally purchased us so we could be slaves of a wonderful master, but slaves we remain. In fact, Jesus even views himself as a servant. When he was here walking the earth, he says, Hey guys, I don't do anything of my own accord. I only do what I see my father doing. He later says, I've come just to do the will of my Father. They were all going, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. And he says, I'm not amazing. I'm here as a servant. This is what my Father wants done, so I'm just the guy doing it. Don't pat the servant on the back. Pat the big guy on the back. So even in our servanthood, Jesus exalts us into a position like that which he has been given. Therefore, we are called co-laborers with Christ. And just remember this for later in the semester. It's co-laborers with Christ. So to fully enter into this servant mindset, we really are resisting what's within us that is an attitude of self-centricity. 
Self-centered living is in polarity to a life that has been born of the kingdom of God. Um, There is a natural inclination to serve oneself. And our minds are being renewed, but they're not there yet. And as they're becoming renewed and we're starting to think more like Jesus thinks, we will find ourselves resisting this desire to just do whatever we want to do. God, I, I know you're seeming me pushing me in this direction, but uh, this doesn't feel like what I want to do. It's going to be so hard, and it's so much extra work, and can't we just do it the easy way? It's just, it looks so much better over here. Um, it's important that we resist that urge and just do what he's telling us we need to do. Um, there's two really good litmus tests to give ourselves to find out if I'm living as a servant now. One is to ask this question, was I explicitly called by God to that which I'm doing? So you just ask, okay, the things that I'm involved in, was I explicitly called by God into these things? Two, who do I envision as the primary benefactor of my labor? This is a little bit more in depth, and you're it's tough because now you've got to get into your, your motives. But when you think about the things that I'm a part of, who do I envision to be the primary benefactor of my labor? So whatever it is you're involved in, is it so that you benefit? Or is your desire because God's told you to do it and you're seeking to benefit him? Now, asking these questions of oneself, it really requires a core honesty um, that when we are acting in a self-centered manner, we lack that core honesty often. At least I do. Um, but the questions are useful to ask because sometimes they jar us and we go, oh my goodness, I've been jumping into things without really thinking about why I'm doing them and they just sound good in a moment. And so um, it's, good to have, it's good to have litmus tests of this sort because uh, sometimes they can shake us out of a slumber. But when we're honest with God and ourselves, we often find that many of our pursuits are for our own comfort and out of personal ambition. How we should view our lives is in a way that we view our days as ours to be spent according to the plans of God in which we've been commanded to participate. It's a hard shift. I'm telling you, it really is. Therefore, we must look to the master rather than to our own desires to find the work he has for us to do. So there's a difference, and I'm going to try to explain the difference to the best of my ability. Um, There's a view of God that views him as a means to our end. And this is what it looks like. We have these dreams We do. I have dreams. I have hopes. I have desires. I've got ministries. I've got businesses, vacations, which I want to experience. And I view God as the vehicle by which these dreams will be fulfilled. He's my dad. I'm a child of God. He's a rich daddy, and he should buy me everything I want and send me to the amazing places I want to go because I want to go. I'll serve, but it's going to be at my choosing where I go and when. And what this results in is that it, it leaves us enthroned in our own hearts and God positioned at our feet awaiting our next command. And we know as the old quote goes, Jesus will be Lord of all or Lord of nothing at all. For us to be enthroned as kings in our hearts brings a most terrible result. Have you ever considered... Um, I remember uh, (laughs) reading once someone said the most frightening verse they ever read in the Bible was when um, they saw that uh, God would give them the desires of their heart. And they thought, whoa, that's terrifying. And I got to thinking about what if God were asking me what I thought should happen in certain situations? You know, I'm like, 
you're in a life situation and you're really praying like, God, you know, make this happen and make this happen and give me this. And it was like the Lord confronted me and he's like, what if I gave you all those things? And I was terrified because I realized, I don't know. If you did all that, there'd be a lot of ramifications that would go along with all of those things coming to pass. And I don't know if I'm ready to handle that kind of stuff. I remember I had this situation, and I didn't even know if it was real, but um, it happened three times in a week, and I figured it just had to be because I wasn't thinking about it. But the Lord said, ask of me anything, even up to half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And the first time I was like, that's in the book of Esther. <laughs> you know, and so I was pretty proud of myself that I knew where it was in the Bible. And then I feel like it in my heart again, like a couple days later, and I was like, really? And so now I start thinking about it more out of curiosity. And as I thought about it, I realized I have no idea what I'd ask for. Because I don't know what any of them would bring. You know, okay, God, make me rich. I don't know what effect that's going to have on me. I don't know how I would handle having more money than I knew what to do with. I like to think that, you know, like all of us in this room, if somebody's like, what happens if you get a billion dollars? Everybody in this room goes, well, I'd give away 90% and I'd live off 10. Everybody in the room would do it. But then you get the billion dollars, and first you get 40% knocked off in taxes. Now you're down to 600 million, and you're like, wait a second, I agreed to 90-10. And it's, it suddenly starts to slip away, and you start spending it in your mind, and suddenly, would you really do what you said you'd do before you had the money, now that you have the money? I don't know. And I started to evaluate, God, I don't know what's best. And it was like, he kind of looks, he's like, I know. Oh. That's why we're not supposed to be the ones having to make these decisions. Because we truly don't know what's best. We can't see the whole picture. And we're not supposed to. I also lived the other side of it where I had a lot of things that I wanted. And they were good things. They were ministry things. They were to help other people. They were to bring God glory. I mean, you know, maybe I would have, you know, become a big deal in the process too. I mean, whatever. Uh, But it's mostly good. Um, But I thought these things should happen. And I'm kind of, you know, God, here we go. You know, you got all this authority and influence, God. You're not getting me where we should be going. And he's taking a different route than I ever would have chosen. And I was angry for years because of this. Because I knew the hopes and dreams that I had. I knew the things that should be happening, and they weren't happening. He just would not cooperate with me on the throne and him at my feet. And I was, I was angry and frustrated for a long time. It's not a pleasant way to live. What it costs us, it's great. I will not tell you that it's small. The cost is immense. It means that you must be willing to abandon your hopes your dreams, and your plans in their entirety. Your ideas about what's best for you and where you should go. As I was living in this frustration, there are numerous times over my life where, um, I'll tell you a situation that, that happened and kind of try to um, anecdotally explain myself. I was, it was before I was married, um, I was about 23 or 24, I don't know how old I was, and um, I was praying, you know, uh, as most of us did when we were single and um, desperate, um, looking for a covenantal relationship. Um, desperate, and um, I'm praying for my wife, begging, um, I'm pretty sure, but um, God, you know, 
really am praying for my wife and that she's going to be this and that. And um, I remember uh, God asking me, um, will you be single for the rest of your life? And uh, I, I remember just wrestling. I was so angry with him that he would ask me that. Um, I was also um, stupid enough at the time, um, you know, to, uh, to know that you shouldn't wrestle with God. You're, you're going to lose, so you might as well just try to keep it short. Um, and so after not a real long time of angrily telling, what do you mean? You know, I thought this, and I want this. And I said, fine, you know, I will. And it was a yes in my heart. It was a real I will be single for the rest of my life. It was true, and I meant it. And in that moment, um, I knew the Lord said, you're going to be married with him. Actually, what he said was really interesting. He said, you'll be the next person in your family to get married. And I knew when he said that it was my cousin's, which was really strange because I had a cousin who was engaged to be married the next August, and this was in about September. Um, (laughs) This gets a little bit funny. Um, I went out into the kitchen, and uh, uh, I was at my mom's house. I went out in the kitchen, and my sister was sitting out there, and I'm like, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I just had the craziest experience, you know, and I tell her, like, I was praying, and like, I was praying for my wife, and God's like this, and she's like, yeah, I was kind of wondering what you were doing in there for so long, and, you know, because at that point, my prayer life was like, you know, 15-second prayers, you know, and uh, she's like, I wonder what you are doing in there for so long, and I said, well, God asked me if I'd be single the rest of my life. And after like an hour, I finally just said, fine, I'll do it. And right away he said, you're going to be married. You're going to be the next one married in your family. And she looks at me and she gets this, if you know my sister, she kind of treats me like I'm an idiot. So she knows me really well, evidently. And um, she gets this wry smile and she goes, do you even talk to girls? (laughs) No! (laughs) She's like, okay. And, uh, I, uh, I met Mary, um, I think, three weeks later, and we were married the next June. Um, but I had to relinquish and abandon my hope, my desire. Once I did so, he then gave me his hope and his desire. It happened to be the same in this case, ultimately, in a, in a wife, right? I didn't know that at the time. I discovered that later. At the time, I, I just kind of hoped that a woman would want to marry me. Um, I never really expected her to be beautiful and capable of speaking in complete sentences. Um, I was just glad that she was female um, and, you know, wasn't blind. But um, whatever, it's good. So, getting, getting distracted. Did I lose a page? Okay, we're good. Jesus expressed this same thing um, in his own life when he said, I do not do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus understood from the very outset that I'm not here to chase the things I want. I'm here to chase the things he wants. God has hopes for us. God has dreams for us. He has a masterful, eternal plan in which he intends us to participate. However, we will not experience his hopes, his dreams, and his plans until we are willing to abandon and let go of ours. Because he is a gentleman, and he will not force himself upon us. But when we allow him to master us and we commit to be his servants, we get to enter into this reality in which the heroes of the faith lived. When you read in Hebrews 11, we're no longer bound by a reality that is defined by what we see, understand, or reason, we truly begin to be heavenly. Do you remember? Um, I, I, there's a few people out of Hebrews 11 and, and some of the heroes of the faith that I just want to bring up quickly. Do you remember um, Moses and all the amazing things this guy did? This, he's, he's amazing. You know, Moses, he, uh, he, you remember he was like the guy who had the ten plagues on, on Egypt. You know, and he calls him down. He, remember, he sticks his staff in the water. The thing turns to blood. Uh, he's got the snake thing going. This guy, Moses, was like, 
crazy cool stuff. Um, you, you remember the whole little little Red Sea thing? You know, ocean kind of divides in two. They walk. I don't know. That'd be, I think that would be cool. I would love to stick my stick in the water and have the. I just think it'd be cool. So here's Moses, and he's he's as a shepherd, and he's walking in the wilderness, and he sees a burning bush, and he goes over, and God says, "Hey, guess what? You're going to be the deliverer of Israel." And what is Moses' reaction? No way. I don't want to do that. Now, for most of us, we're like, I would take Moses' job. I would take that calling. He's getting to do the signs. He's getting to do the wonders. He's got the stick in the water thing going. I'll take Moses' calling. Largely in part because we know that being a shepherd would be horrible. You're just hanging out, you and the sheep, out in the back 40. Um, and most of us would jump at the chance to get to do what Moses did as long as it only meant giving up our dream of walking around with sheep. But you know what? I was thinking about this through, um, well, Pastor and Shar, they like, they like animals and gardening. And my brother-in-law, Brent, he has pigs and he has chickens. And, and they have this like, kind of like mini farm. And every time I get together with either Pastor or Brent, they're talking about what they're going to do with their animals and their farm and the land. And I realized Moses had probably spent all these years walking around with his sheep thinking and dreaming about all the things he was going to do with his herd and his flock and where they were going to go and how it was going to grow and how he's going to breed this one with this one and get one that was really could produce the wool and on and on and on. And I know it sounds so silly to us, but tell me you don't do that with the things that you hold precious to you. That's what Moses would have held precious to him and that's what he would have had to give up. And he was thinking, God, I like my sheep. I like my land. I've got plans for my land. You're messing it up by sending me back to Pharaoh in those whiny Israelites that you know won't listen to me. I don't want to give up this dream. It's so peaceful out here. He wasn't a glory hound. I can tell you that. He had to abandon his plans to access God's. Gideon, Joseph, Elijah, Elisha, and others too numerous to count were called out of their plans and into God's. And when God does this, he does it in a way that we wouldn't choose. We look at all the old farmers and we go, oh God, if I was in that situation, I'd have, I'd have been waiting at the edge of the road for the bush to start on fire so that I could be called out of being a shepherd. Because that stuff isn't appealing to us. But what about our life of comfort? What about the things that we enjoy so much that we're a part of now? And God shows up one day and he's like, you're leaving and you are going over there. You are going to the latest Ebola outbreak. You're going to minister in Iraq or North Korea. It'd probably take a little bit different approach for us at that point. Why does God call us into a direction that we would never choose? Because there's something that rightly and appropriately changes in our hearts when we do what we're opposed to simply because he's asked us. First of all, there's two things that I'm going to point out that it accomplishes. First, as the journey progresses, there's no confusion as to who receives the credit for the course we're on. It produces humility in us, and God gets the credit or the glory. I can tell you in my own life, when people talk about the things that have happened to me or if I get to be a part of something really cool, I had no choice in the matter. Is it great? Absolutely. Am I enjoying it more than I've ever enjoyed anything I've done? Absolutely. Did I have anything to do with getting myself there? Absolutely not. I would never have chosen this. I opposed it for years. We don't get to take credit 
when he calls us into a direction we would not choose. That's how he gets glory. And secondly, while it's painful, it brings tremendous freedom or liberty. How? How does it bring liberty to go into servitude and do something I don't want to do? That sounds like slavery. Kind of is. But what it frees us from is responsibility. We're releasing the heavy yoke of decision-making to learn that he is a good shepherd. What if you were to find out that you are not responsible for anything, for your provision, for what you're going to do, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? Suddenly it's like, well, that's in fact exactly what Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount. You aren't responsible. Just do what I tell you to do, and I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I'll do it through certain means. I'll do it through jobs. I'll do it through this. I'll do it through this. But it's not your responsibility to make it happen. You aren't going to have to get yourself the job, and you don't have to be afraid of losing yourself the job because I'm going to take care of you. I'm responsible for you. When we say yes to God and go in a direction opposed to our choosing, we're freed from responsibility. And if you just think about that for the next week, the enormity of that may settle on you. It's one of the most liberating things you will ever feel. Because suddenly, let's say it's a job, you don't have to be afraid to lose it anymore. If he told you to be there, he'll keep you there as long as he wants you there. You don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing or offending someone or someone getting mad at you and throwing you out. If you are where he told you to be, you have no concern as to how long you're there, because he's going to protect you as long as you want you in that place. The freedom that comes from not being responsible for ourselves is enormous. That's why he spent so much time talking about it in the Sermon on the Mount. His yoke is easy. That means, son, I'm going to take care of you. Do what I tell you to do, I'm going to provide for you. What master ever had a servant that he didn't provide food, shelter, water, and everything that they needed, and more in this case? As the journey goes on, we learn more and more that he's a good shepherd. In fact, when we give up all of the things that we want, and we say yes to God, and do something even that we might be opposed to, Where the scripture says, he who would save his life will lose it, and he would lose his life will find it. That's what this is referring to. Listen, this is the great thing about getting to do this with God. If you say yes to him and you do something you're opposed to, it will be painful, but it will lead to life and joy like you've never known. If it doesn't, you didn't go in the right direction. But when you go in your direction and you deny his, it will lead to perpetual misery growing and increasing. It's true. I can't explain it. It's just the reality. I've experienced it, so I know that it's true, but it didn't always feel that way. As we give up the mastery, the control, and the decision-making of our own lives, we find that the yoke of Jesus is so light because we're not responsible to make our decisions. He is. But, but, I, I, you know, I hesitated to even talk about this because in some ways God's going to push us to a place where we decide to do what he asks us to do whether or not we think it's going to turn out well in the end. I've, I've been through this so many times where I thought I was going to literally die in a place of misery, and that's what it took to get me to say, fine, God, if this is where you want me, I'll do it. Whatever. I'll stay here for the rest of my life. Boom. All of a sudden, he goes, well, this is what I have for you. And it leads to an ever-increasing, perpetual joy and abundant life. So, I'm going to tell you about this part, but it doesn't mean that he's not going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to decide to obey him in spite of the fact that you're not going to know if it's ever going to look good on the other side. As we go on with Jesus as the master, 
as the Lord, as a decision maker and planner, we discover that he is much more good toward us than we could have ever been to ourselves. Had the conversation at the burning bush ended with Moses informing God that he really felt called to the sheep, the back 40, and he wanted to focus all of his time there, would we even know his name? He never would have seen God's hand of deliverance leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. He never would have gotten to walk across the Red Sea on dry land. He never would have gotten to stand on top of the Mount of Transfiguration and talk to Jesus when he came to earth. None of those things. We wouldn't even know his name. We'd be naming our kids Aaron after his brother. No one would know who Moses was. But Moses, like I said before, he's one we like. Because he was a boring old shepherd and God called him into the spotlight before kings. That I can handle. God, call me out of anonymity and put me in front of the greatest kings in the world. I'll take that calling. What about Daniel, though? Daniel was of the ruling class. His family was murdered. He was likely castrated. And he was forced into servitude in maybe the most profane, perverse, and idolatrous culture ever in the history of the world. Anybody shooting a hand up for that one? Yet Daniel's response remained, I trust you, God. You are the decision maker for my life. And with that response, year after year after year, God led Daniel to be one of the most influential persons throughout history. In fact, Daniel's words continue to come to pass in our day. Daniel's words are still being fulfilled. The, book, the, the words that he wrote in the book of Daniel are still coming to pass in our time. We still look at what Daniel wrote and said, I'm still looking out at the future because of this man. The only way that happens is rather than pout, feel sorry for ourselves and go our own way, we humbly follow God's leadership and allow him to fulfill his plans in us. As we travel with God as our master, we come to discover that servanthood within the house of God surpasses the joy, value, and nobility of the greatest lords outside his gates. As we go on not having to make decisions, being provided for and cared for by God as father and master, we come to find out that he is a good shepherd, a good leader, a good dad, and far better to us than we could have ever been to ourselves. The apostles discovered this as they walked with God because every one of them referred to themselves as bond slaves of Christ. Do you know what a bond slave is, biblically defined? It's defined in the book of Exodus. This is what happens. A servant would be declared free in a year, uh, a year of jubilee or when his time of servitude came to an end. And a servant would be turned free. Young man, you can go. You don't have to serve in my house any longer. A bond slave was when a servant would declare, I love my master and I love my wife and my children and I do not want to go free. I want to stay in the house of my master. And then the master must take him, take him before the judges. He'll go to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, and then he will be his servant for life. A bond slave is when a servant could have gone free and he signs back up for life. And he says, serving in the house of this master is better than anything I could ever have living in freedom on my own. That's what the apostles discovered as they walked as servants of Christ that there is no greater thing that could be given a man than to be called a servant of Christ. And they signed back up. I don't want to go free. I want to work for you. So to wrap up, um, for us today, we must establish, is Jesus the decision maker in my life? Is it my intent to serve Jesus' purposes and draw attention to him? And thirdly, am I serving him because he asked me to, even if it's not what I would have chosen for myself? 
If you answer no to any of those, right now, whenever, is a really good time to say, God, I'm sorry. Make my heart right. Give me the grace to say yes to you. Because I need it. It's hard. I don't want to say yes. I can feel where you're calling me to go, and it doesn't sound pleasant. Help me say yes to you. This is one of the most important heart issues that we can address with God because it rightfully establishes him as the leader and allows him to take us in the direction that he intends for us. With that, go his provision, his protection, his care, everything else. It frees us tremendously, but if we don't deal with the control in our own heart, in the need to be responsible, I know what's best for me, then we never access all the plans that he has for us. So Jared's going to throw some music back on. Um, We're just going to hang out for a little bit. There'll be people around. If you want someone to pray for you, just grab someone. Um, Someone will pray for you. Uh, If you want to just sit, spend a few minutes with the Lord and and getting some things right in your heart, feel free to do that. If you want to talk with someone, ask some people or someone some questions about things that you may be going through, feel free to do that. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that you are a good father. And thank you that you are a good master. Father, thank you that as we submit to you and your desires and your plans, what we find is a life more abundant than anything we could have conjured for ourselves. And in that abundant life, you take responsibility to get us where you want us. You take responsibility to provide for us and protect us. So Lord, if we have strayed from your path, forgive us. And speak to us now as to where we need to get back on course. We want to serve you. We want to love you for all of our days. We want to be in your courts because we know that's where life is found. We love you, God. Amen. Amen.